there's nothing special at all in that, that time. That was one hell of a time, you know, because all he was worrying about was survival. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where, you know, you're going to humans quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country. The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. I'm Alex Lloyd, and you're listening to Life on the Line. This episode is our traditional holiday season special with veterans from season six sharing their stories of a Christmas in uniform. Some of these stories are of fun times had abroad and at home. Some are of making a difference to the local community and others are of hardship and war. The stories in this episode range from World War II to the Vietnam War, from peacekeeping in Timor to the war in Afghanistan. This is Christmas on the Line. Dr. Dan Pronk was deployed to Timor with the regular army, spending a Christmas there after completing the SASR selection course. And Dan, over your career, you missed a couple of Christmases away from home. Can you tell me about the first Christmas you had in Timor? Yeah, so that was 2008. And so that was, which was, it was a really, actually it was a very exciting year for me, that one in general. That was the year where I had done SAS selection and managed to get through. I was working with 5RAR at the time up in in Darwin, and and I've spoken to this story before. I'd, I'd gone and done selection. Five RAR was going to Timor at the end of that year, and the the agreement was that if if five couldn't find another doctor for their trip, I would, you know, if I'd been successful in selection, I would come back to the unit anyway, and 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 that's what ended up happening. So I deployed with five at the end of two thousand and eight. And ended up doing just four months of that eight-month trip. But that took me over Christmas and New Year's uh, deployed. So by that stage in Timor, it was there, there wasn't anything going on fighting-wise. It was a, a very sort of peaceful and, and, and benign environment. But nonetheless, for me, it was my first deployment. So it was fantastic to get overseas. It was a, a great bunch of people. And the, the boss at 5RAR uh, at that point uh, who I've remained in contact with, but but just a wonderful human being, and and really facilitated some great training for me in Timor. So I, the trip was was excellent for a whole bunch of reasons, not necessarily from a, a military professional satisfaction perspective, from an operational perspective. But there was some some really great experiences there, and and just being away deployed, it was an opportunity to get my first medal which um which at the time you know looking back i, I think the stuff that these uh, you know i don't want to call medals trinkets because that's that's really diminishing the significance but but these you know i remember the anzac day before i went away and and i had the australian defense medal that had just turned up in the mail quite literally while i was at medical school it came in the mail on the same day as a phone bill so i got these two things <laughs> unannounced in the mail when i was at, at uni and so it didn't really hold tremendous significance 
uh, for me. And I remember the Anzac Day before Timor 2008 and, and just looking around at other people with medals and, and feeling that I, I, I wanted to, to be part of that tribe. You know, you wanted to just to, to feel it, like you fit in a bit more. Anyway, so Timor was a great opportunity for that and, and spent the Christmas and New Year's over there, which I, I recall as being, being great. You know, they put on a good feed. We were in Dili there at Timor. And, and so, yeah, I quite in, enjoyed it. And at that stage, it was also new and exciting. I knew that I was heading to two commando regiment the following year, so the the SOCOM kind of goal was coming to fruition. And and so I don't recall, and once again, embarrassingly, I don't recall really missing home at that point or feeling like I was missing a family Christmas, which I was. You know, I had a young son at that point. My eldest son Hank was uh, he was born in in two thousand and seven, so he was just eighteen months old. But embarrassingly, on reflection, I was so absorbed in my professional goals that it, it didn't really even register as a sad event that I was missing Christmas at home. Nick Howless returned home for Christmas, fresh from patrolling in the jungle with the SAS in the Vietnam War. He shared this story including the surprising reason he was sent home early with Angus Horden. So, Nick, were you in Vietnam over Christmas or did you actually get home in time? Through misadventure, I ended up spending Christmas with the in-laws and my wife in Sydney. It went down like this. (laughs) A most unfortunate, I was what's called a non-battle casualty. In other words, I was injured within the base camp, not on patrol. So... Around about uh, the 12th of December, um, I was doing uh, operations officer duty. I, I think I did a, uh, I did my November patrol. Then December, he put me on operations officer. And the Kiwis were on their last day, and they had a hungi, which is uh, you know cooking the meat underground with stones and what have you. And then they were flying out back home to New Zealand the next day. So late in the evening after celebrations, I decided to go down to the Kiwi lines to um, say, uh, give a private farewell to some of my friends. And then I got whacked over the head uh, in between the tent lines. And um, then uh, things just clouded over and I went to the ground and I got pretty severely or seriously beaten up by Wendy McGee. He's dead now, but a, a Kiwi sergeant that was always a problem um, uh, both on patrol and, and, and back in the camp, even though I didn't have command. I ended up uh, in hospital and then in a wheelchair. And it was only four weeks before we were packing up to come home, um, return to Australia, the whole unit. So the medico said, look, what's the point in patching him up and leaving him here for four weeks? So and the, uh, I, I remember them saying that, you know, he's, he's had a pretty full year with his patrolling and what have you. We'll send him home. So I didn't protest too loudly. I was pretty sore, a few broken bones. Um, McGee was charged, lost seniority, fined and all that sort of stuff. But then he hopped on a plane and went back to New Zealand. So that was that incident. And I flew down to Sydney, met by my wife and the in-laws, and so I ended up Christmas at Kalara, December 1969. I wasn't aware of that, obviously, you know, with the discussions we've had. So this guy was just trying to get some retribution on you and cowardly assaulted you from behind, you know, at a terrible time. Yeah, he, uh, he was a very bad drunk. They had done 12 months of same sort of patrolling I had done and the brutalisation that affected them all and that sort of stuff. And I, I think 
it was probably more to do, get out of here, I don't want anything more to do. He didn't know it was me. In fact, I, I was quite friendly with Winnie McGee. He had no idea. He was absolutely blind drunk. And I came around the tents and he must have thought I was creeping around where I shouldn't be. But anyway, the OC, around about one o'clock in the morning, called out the entire squadron and, um, and grilled everyone to find out who it was. And then they discovered who it was and he was put under arrest. I think that was about the fifth time I broke my nose, the first time being at Knox in a diving accident. Well, Nick, that was certainly a very eventful Christmas. Very different. Pretty sore when I got home. However, I, I was sort of privately glad that I, I, I was tired after by December and we could see the packing up starting to get ready to go. And I wouldn't have gone out on patrol again anyway. I would have had to have tidied up the operations officer type side of the thing. So, yeah, Christmas at Kalara. Curtis McGrath had a Christmas in Timor years before his fateful trip to Afghanistan. And we're like, oh, why don't we spend, you know, 50 US dollars each, which is, you know, bugger all in comparison, because we're not spending our money, we're not, not doing anything. Why don't we just go to the local, like, store and buy a heap of toys, like, too many toys. We bought <laughs> way too many toys that the, the nuns were not, they were impressed, but they, they were like, oh, we need to, like, hold on to these. Um, so we, we rocked up with, like, a truckload full of, toys for the kids for Christmas. So we went and had like a Christmas dinner with them, which was really cool, a uh, really sort of nice gesture. I didn't think we could do um, just to make make their lives just a little bit happier and hopefully um, a bit more, you know, hope towards it. So, um, which is, you know, a really fulfilling feeling. Um, the best thing we did was give them a water tank that they could store all their water in. And, That's and, the practical help, yes. But yeah, the but the kids the kids don't see that, though. They, they, they don't understand that. So, you know, um, well, they, they might, but it's always fun when you, you get to hang out with the kids and, and, you know, play with the toys with them. You mentioned that you were basically acting like a Santa or, or and all that with the kids in the orphanage bringing in those uh, Christmas presents. Did you guys get to unwind on Christmas Day after bestowing that lovely gesture and have a fun time yourselves or are you busy on the job? I think Christmas Day was like a down down day. We didn't do anything. What we did at the orphanage was probably a couple of days before it, but um, the the actual Christmas Day, because we're all like down, like low tempo over the Christmas period. So whenever we moved during that period, we needed a bit of security. So we, we always had security with us, um, which was part of our role also. But at the same time, we had an opportunity just to chill out. Um, we didn't, I think we just had a barbecue on the base. Some of the guys had their rock hall, which is, um, I don't even know what that stands for anymore, but it's when they get to go and leave and you get two weeks off. So some of the guys with families, they went home and obviously with little kids and wives and stuff like that. And I, I didn't have any of that. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll stay here for over Christmas and I'll go on, on the next rotation or the rotation after. So I didn't think too much of it. Yeah, we just had a nice barbecue and chilled out. We had a, a water tank that we'd cut the top off, like a pl big plastic one, probably, I don't know, like a 15,000 litre water tank, cut the top off it and used it as a swimming pool. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Royal Australian Air Force veteran Paul Gebrin remembers being on notice to move for a few Christmas days. Over all your years in the Air Force, Paul, did you ever have a Christmas in uniform? I don't think that I did. I mean, we've had a, a couple of Christmases where the units we were at were on notice to move so we couldn't go anywhere we had to stay at home and have christmas there a lot of the times i was i was lucky enough to be able to to structure my um next uh, like the rock leave and that if i was going to be over christmas to get it over christmas so 
I might have gone like four or five months and then had Christmas. A couple of tense ones almost have to be ready for something, but not quite actually having to, thankfully. No, no, not having to spend it away over Christmas. But thankfully, I was one of the lucky ones. I mean, there's obviously been countless other servicemen and women that have, have spent Christmases over, overseas on deployments and um, you know, always tip me hat off to them over that time and, and think of them every Christmas. And the obvious exception for your uh, story is you and your wife getting those phone calls in regards to the 2004 Boxing Day tsunami, obviously affecting that holiday period, but not the day itself. Yeah, pretty much. It, um, yeah, so it was just from Boxing Day onwards to however long it was, and then you get the time off, time off later as well. So, Dr. Dan Pronk had a second Christmas away from home, this time in Afghanistan. And Dan, for your second Christmas away from home, I'm going to read a few lines from your memoir, The Combat Doctor. That evening, after the kids were in bed, I set about breaking the news to Christy. Doing my best to feign dismay, I explained that I was required back in Afghanistan earlier than expected, and I would miss another Christmas. Christy was having none of it. Just tell them you can't, and you'll deploy as planned in the new year, she said. Uh, it doesn't really work that way, babe, I replied. You're not even going to try, are you? She was absolutely fucking correct that I wasn't going to try. But tell me about that uh, Christmas in Afghanistan, Dan. Yeah, well, that's, and that was, once again, text, textbook Christy, God bless her. She, we had plans that, that Christmas to come back to Adelaide, where she's from, and have a family Christmas. We were building it, the, the house that we now live in was being built at that stage. And so we had all these plans. And, and then once again, my work had just destroyed these plans. And, and I think somewhere between just pure frustration of that being the case, and then also maybe a little bit of a misinterpretation of, of the power that I held with regard to telling them when I would deploy or not. I, I think that that was that scenario. But but yeah, that I, I can't even remember why I deployed early in, on that period. But but it, it ended up that I went over during during the winter period and spent a Christmas there. That I remember that period. I don't remember Christmas Day specifically, to be honest. But I do recall just noticing compared to my previous tours which had been in the middle of the the fighting seasons that it was it was a a far slower tour you know there was snowed in for periods of time and and it was less kinetic that was actually a period where i did do a ton of writing uh, when we were stuck on base and so so that was good but uh yeah i don't i don't actually remember christmas day to be honest the general i guess environment of that different time of year the beauty of winter in Afghanistan and the reduced pressure for it being out of the fighting season, it would have just been refreshing to be in that country and experiencing a deployment like that just in a different way, in a different context. Yeah, it was. It was great. And like you say, I mean, the, Afghanistan is such a stunning country from a, um, a, a geography perspective. It's, it's amazing. And to be there when when there was snow in the mountains and and also to, to operate in that space, we were still launching on missions and, and it, it really... Uh, was a different it's a different beast i mean you know if you get you take your casualties in the middle of summer you've got the heat and and everything else to contend with when you're doing operations there but but the the added complexity of doing going on ops and 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 then trying to respond to casualties in freezing temperatures it's it's a whole different beast and from a trauma perspective hypothermia casualties cooling down is a, a real risk and that causes this cascade of of uh, negative outcomes in trauma casualties and and thankfully we didn't well we did have some casualties uh, but 
But on the operations I was on, we certainly didn't see casualties like like we had on my second tour because, you know, that added complexity of trying to keep someone alive when it's zero degrees compared to 30 degrees uh, really increases the, the, the difficulty. World War II Kokoda campaign veteran Reg Chard recalls a Christmas in hell in New Guinea in 1942. Well, Reg, I want to ask you about the Christmas you had in New Guinea, 1942, after fighting along the Kokoda Trail and finding yourself in San Ananda. But before we get to that particular story of Christmas Day, 42, I'd like to read two paragraphs from your memoir, The Digger of Kokoda. This is the beginning of Chapter 28, Christmas in Hell. Despite the loss of more Australians in futile attacks, the Japanese remained entrenched in their bunkers and pillboxes at Christmas time. It didn't matter how often we attempted to overrun them. Our bullets, bayonets, and the bravery of those who threw themselves at the defences made little, if any, impact. There were hundreds of bunkers, and something we begrudgingly admired about our enemy was that they'd made brilliant use of the terrain. It reduced the number of tactical possibilities that were available to General Vasey and his staff of officers. When we weren't stuck in our foxholes, we were out on patrols to find where the enemy were, and it was always a macabre lottery as to who would survive the network of Japanese snipers and machine gunners dispersed throughout the jungle, and who wouldn't. The snipers remained a curse, and the only reason we didn't scour the ground for telltale signs such as boot prints that would have given their positions away was because we were too preoccupied, constantly scanning the tops of tall palm trees in the hope we'd spot them before they fired. In any event, We rarely saw them, because they camouflaged themselves so well, they became as much a part of the tree as a palm frond or a coconut. Now, Reg, that's sort of a great, wonderful background to the tension, to the day-to-day living situation of you guys on the Kokoda Trail in 1942, not to mention months and months of fighting. If we use that as a background and then turn to Christmas Day, Tell me about Christmas 1942 for you. Uh, well, to start with, we never knew where we were in the jungle because there was no nowhere to tell you. You know, there's no signs up. So, I mean, the same, exactly the same with the days. We had no idea what day it was or what month it was. Now, the only reason we knew it was Christmas Day, Captain Albert Morton, the Salvation Army, and he's offside. I never knew what his name was. They come up there mid-morning, Christmas Day, and we had never had any lollies or anything like that at all. And he had a brown paper bag, because we didn't have plastic in those days, and he had uh, boiled lollies in them. So he was giving each man a boil, one boiled lolly per person, and that was – and Merry Christmas. That's the only way we knew it was Christmas Day. Uh, so somebody said to him, Albert, give us the bloody bag and get yourself out of here because, you know, you're too much of a target walking there. So this is what they did, and myself, you know – you, you see all these lollies in this bag and you think, oh, you know, I might grab you know, two or three, but you didn't, you took one. And each and every person did the same thing. So when we dished them out, the bag came back, we passed it back to Albert Moore and he went along to the next lot of people who might have been over our left or our right. Um, as for food, the food was just the same as what we always had, dried apricots, dried prunes and dehydrated apple. There was no, no, nothing marvellous about Christmas Day and, of course, nobody gave it a second thought, to be quite honest with you. And it was just another day in hell. That's his way to describe it. I love the image of the Salvo officer going from defensive position to defensive position, risking himself very much for the sake of giving each of you 
a single Christmas lolly. Yeah, that's beautiful. Give us one boil lolly per person. That's that's what the, he said. There's one per one boil lolly per person, and he said when they're gone, there is no more. So that's why nobody took more than one. And you obviously don't get a nice, you know, roast turkey or a ham or a pavlova, <laughs> but. Bully beef from tin, was there a special treat meal at all or just not just normal Christmas Nothing. day? Nothing. It was just if Albert Moore hadn't come up there, we would have been known none the wiser on Christmas Day to any other day. So there's nothing special at all in that, that time. That was one hell of a time, you know, because all he was worrying about was survival. And I imagine with this uh, context we've been discussing and all you are focused on is survival – once you were alerted to the fact it was Christmas, you weren't exactly feeling full of Christmas cheer and wanting to sing carols or celebrate or anything like that. No, no, no. Just a, literally another day. It just went back. As soon as you sucked a lolly, well, I sucked mine. It lasted longer. And when it was gone, that was Christmas. Did you spend Christmas Day thinking about the jungle in front of you and what enemy might be lurking out there, or did you cast your mind back to home? Well, everybody, yeah. Every person, immaterial how old you were, how young, everybody thought of home. And the good food waiting for them at home as well. That's right, yeah. Nobody complained. That's the part that amazes me, you know, even today when I lay in bed early hours in the morning thinking, nobody complained about anything because they just took as it had come because there was nothing you can do about it. So if your winds had made it worse for you, so just kept quiet. Michael Greenway recalls using his connections from working in supply to have a fun Christmas in Timor. Again, being overseas and serving for 36 years, you must have surely spent at least a Christmas overseas. When I was at um, Timor, we did spend Christmas in Timor, which was quite, even though you're away from family, you're still with people who you'd formed a fairly strong bond with. We used a lot of our influence to get bunting in, uh, Christmas pie, like party pies, sausage rolls. So we, we tapped a few people there, big on the loggy side, where we could... Um, get a few favours. Um, just as you mentioned there with uh, General Cosgrove, he came to visit us one day and um, his old stomping ground. And we had a fellow there by the name of Poof. His uh, name to fame was he was the heaves man. Everywhere he went, he put up a heaving bar. So to join the heave bar, you had to do one heave. So it was great to see General Cosgrove come out and give it a good crack. <laughs> and I must say, he did get his name on the bar. Okay. I, I dare say he was a bit slimmer then. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. I think so, he was, yeah. So, so out of interest, what um, what beer would they ship in for you? Might have been Forex or something, I can't recall. Which would have been hard being a Victorian, huh? Yeah, it was. <laughs> Sabrina Smeaton wanted to make Christmas in Afghanistan a joyful occasion for everyone on deployment. So, Sabrina, you would have experienced a Christmas in Afghanistan. How was that both for, I guess, the culture, the climate, being away from family? What was the mood and atmosphere like? My one good Samaritan deeds that I did whilst whilst over there. Christmas provides so much joy for so many people. But for a lot of those that, you know, have partners and have families, being away from them, I, I could understand now as a parent, it would be it would be really tough. You know, at the time I didn't have my little girl and I didn't have a partner. So for me, it was pretty easy. But I just felt I sort of that I had the ability because I love to chat and network to use my creative resources to try to give everybody a Christmas that I hope would make them smile and make them that make it just that little bit easier to be away from said husbands, wives, children. 
I worked with, uh, and I don't remember the companies now because it was a while ago, but I reached out to a bunch of different companies probably four months prior to Christmas and asked for a variety of things from magazines, lollies, cologne, you know, like packs from L'Oreal and all that sort of stuff. Uh, I got in a Christmas tree, decorations, my top bunk. Everyone wondered why I was getting so much mail because it was too much. I was picking up like big mail bags full and it was just to me. But what I what I wanted to do was on Christmas Day, I wanted everybody to open, you know, a little Santa sack, you know, and, and have gifts and be able to feel that joy. And it actually turned out really well. Everybody got presents. I was able to go and I had a really great relationship with the guys at the stores and I got, you know, extra bacon and eggs and lollies and, and it was awesome. And we had our own like Christmas on a long table with Christmas crackers. And we also did also get a lot of care packages as well, which added nice pictures to our wall, you know, that children had made. And it was beautiful because I got some wives reach out to me afterwards and just said like, hey, thank you so much. You know, our husband let us know the effort you put in and and how much joy it brought him. And, and that really meant a lot because they didn't have to reach out to me. You know, I was just some chick on a deployment that was really nice. I really liked it. And it, it made us, again, moments of joy, like forget that we weren't with family. And so were you on shift on Christmas Day? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't stop for Christmas. So you've got, you've got the proverbial uh, roast in the oven to take care of and set the table with the Christmas crackers and have to work. So you're doing it all. That's right. A woman's work is never done. <laughs> that was Christmas on the Line. Volume 5, 2022. Be sure to listen to the individual episodes from earlier this year. All details are in the episode description and on our website. In 2018, Season 2, I hosted the first of these specials, Christmas on the Line. A Christmas story in uniform. In 2019, Season 3, Sharon Maskeldare hosted Christmas on the Line, Volume 2. But... It's a one of a kind. You can't replicate that here. For as bad as it sounds, I do enjoy a little bit of Christmas here, but I enjoyed the Christmas over there more because it was different. You can't do that anywhere else. In 2020, Season 4, Angus Horden hosted Christmas on the Line, Volume 3. Lots of people walking around in combat gear, all camouflaged and booted and spurred for a fight with a red Santa Claus hat on. And last year, in Season 5, Thomas Kay hosted... Christmas on the Line, Volume 4. And it was freezing, it was Christmas, and I remember having some drinks with the guys there. And It's kind of weird to be overseas during that period, but I feel like it was very common around that time. We just expected to be away a lot of the year. It was an unusual way to live, and we did it for years. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. And if you like this episode, please consider sharing the podcast on social media or rating us five stars in Apple Podcasts. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions, artwork by Big Cat Design, music by Dan Van Werkhoven. I'm Alex Lloyd, on behalf of the team, wishing you all a Merry Christmas. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 